Hello, it's great to be with you today. My name is Jen, and I just want to give you a really warm welcome. And if you're joining us online, I just want to say a really warm welcome to you today. My name is Jen, and I'm really excited to be kicking off our brand new series, People Really Matter. You know, this is a really high value for us at C3, because our Father in Heaven, the God who created the universe, cares about every single person. When Jesus came to earth, he came to reveal the Father to us. He came to show us what our Heavenly Father is like. And everywhere Jesus went, he connected with people, regardless of their background, regardless of their status, their social position, regardless of their standing or what others thought of them. Jesus made time for people because people really matter. You see, that's really countercultural because actually oftentimes the people that matter to us most are the people that are just like us. But if we really value people like Jesus, we need to learn to value everybody. And you know, the most vulnerable in society actually need our special care and attention. And so as we go through this series, not only are we going to be talking about people really matter, but we're also going to be highlighting some of the strategic partnerships that we have here at C3 and how they are helping some of society's most vulnerable people. I really believe that this series is going to encourage you, but I also believe it's going to challenge you. It's going to stretch you. Are you up for that, church? Those of you that are watching online, are you up for that? Because if you are, I just want to invite you right now to just put your hand on your heart and just repeat this after me. Father God, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you value me. Father God, increase my capacity to love and value others like you do. And Holy Spirit, I'm giving you permission to highlight anything in my life that is a barrier to me valuing people like you and give me the grace to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today our theme is divorced people really matter. In the last 10 years, 10 to 12 years, the Centre for Social Justice in the UK has done a huge body of research on the state of our nation. And one of the things that they've been looking at is this issue of family breakdown. And the results are devastating. Did you know that the UK is actually a world leader when it comes to family breakdown? 42% of marriages in the UK now end in divorce. In fact, children today are more likely, teenagers today are more likely to own a smartphone than to be living with both of their parents. The Marriage Foundation also says that the rates of breakdown for cohabiting couples are even higher. And I just want to make it clear that when I talk today about divorce, people really matter. I'm including in that anyone who's been in a cohabiting relationship, because the impact is the same. Family breakdown, divorce, is a huge issue in our nation. And it's happening out there in the world, and it's also happening in the church. 
In fact, I, I would go so far as to say that there is not a single person in this room or listening to us online that does not know at least one person in their world who has experienced divorce. And yet, divorce is rarely talked about. And that's why we wanted to talk about it today. Because divorced people really matter. I have had personal experience of divorce. I'm the second eldest of seven children, and I experienced my parents' divorce at the age of 21. Several years later, my first marriage ended in divorce, and I can tell you, I was absolutely devastated. At the time, I thought I would never recover from the pain. But I came here today to tell you that there is life after divorce. And I can say that today with great conviction and great confidence, not just because of my own experience, but because I've spent the last 10 years walking alongside others and helping them to navigate that journey. In the last two years, I, I set up an organization with my husband called Mosaic Lives, which is all about helping individuals build relational resilience. I now work as a relationship coach and one-to-one, -one, and with my husband, run courses and workshops to help people recover from separation and divorce. And so today, I'm going to be drawing on some of that experience as I try to paint a picture of what divorce is like, how it impacts people, and how we as a church can reach out to those who experience divorce and really place value and dignity on them. And so I want to talk today about five things that you need to know about divorce. Five things that you need to know about divorce. And I want to say up front, some of what you hear today may be quite hard-hitting, but I believe that is part of the journey for us if people really matter. We have to be willing to step into their shoes and to really understand and connect with what it's like. Five things you need to know about divorce. The first thing is that divorce is devastating. Divorce is one of the most painful experiences a person can face in their entire lifetime. I want you to take a look at this video where some people try to put into words what that pain actually feels like. Divorce for me is shocking, it's messy, it's challenging, it's emotional, it's, it's hard. Divorce is devastating. You know, divorce is similar to bereavement. It's ultimately about loss. And it's not just one loss, it is loss on a massive scale. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say that there is not a single part of a person's life that remains unchanged when a person experiences divorce. And you know, the way that God has wired us, the way that God has made us is that the way that we process loss is we have to grieve. We have to grieve our losses. But you know what? If you've never experienced grief before, it can feel alarming. It can feel overwhelming because, you see, grief is a a mind, body, and soul experience. We feel grief in our bodies. You know, when, when you're grieving, you, you will go on this whole roller coaster of emotions from, from pain to overwhelming sadness, maybe anger, guilt, bitterness, a whole mix of emotions. And you know, in the early days, those emotions can feel really raw and really intense. And so if divorced people really matter, I want to say to you, one of the, one of the most helpful things that you can do is be a safe pair of ears is just to be able to sit with someone in the intensity and the rawness of that pain and just listen. They don't need you to solve it. In fact, you can't solve it. But just sitting there and listening and listening. You see, sometimes people need to tell their story again and again and again. That's part of the grief. It's part of them coming to terms and making sense of what's happened. And you will never fully understand the tremendous amount of comfort and connection that you can bring simply by sitting with someone in their pain. We feel divorce in, in, in our bodies. It's, it's an emotional roller coaster. But, you know, grief also impacts our functioning. It impacts sleeping patterns. It impacts our eating patterns. Normal, everyday things that we took for granted, like shopping and doing the laundry and looking after our children and going to work, all of those things suddenly become a huge effort. And you know, one of the things that can really be impacted is is our work. You know, I remember talking to a a director of a, a large bank and she said to me, she said, my performance at work is definitely impacted. She said, I'm really struggling to focus at work, to concentrate. And she said, I've told my boss, but he just doesn't get it. She said, he, he feels awkward. And, uh, and she said, I, you know what, I just, so I'm just getting on with it. Because I'm the only female in that team, in that senior leadership team. And she said, I don't want to be seen as an emotional woman. And I want to say to you today, maybe you're here and you're an employer. Maybe you're a line manager, maybe you're a colleague. And I want to say to you, you know what? Actually, grief impacts our functioning. And if people are struggling at work, it's normal. It's not because they're weak. It's not because they don't have resilience. It's because they're grieving. And I want to encourage you, if you're an employer or if you're in a position where you can put some support around that individual or even just listen and validate their pain, it will make such a tremendous difference. In fact, research has shown that the the earlier support is put around an employee, the less likely they are to go off on long-term sickness. Grief is... Divorce is devastating. It impacts our emotional functioning. It impacts our functioning. The second thing that you need to know about divorce is that divorce is complex. You know, there are many common themes to divorce but every story is unique. It's never black and white. And really, only the divorcing couple and God truly know 
what has led to the breakdown of their relationship. And sometimes, even then, there can be a lot of unanswered questions. Sometimes a partner may have led a double life. Maybe they, they actually will never share what's actually really going on for them. And so there can be many unanswered questions. But not only that, divorce is complex because aside from dealing with the, the, the grief and loss, people are also having to navigate some really difficult decisions, not least the legal process, which can be really overwhelming. Having heart-wrenching conversations like, when am I going to see the children and do we need to sell the marital home? And if divorced people really matter, then one of the things that I would encourage you to do is maybe, maybe consider going with someone when they go to see their solicitor being an extra pair of ears in the room and maybe taking a notepad and making notes for them because, as I say, their functioning is impacted. They might find it difficult to concentrate. Maybe you're here and you're good with finances. Would you be willing to spend an hour with someone and just sit down and help them to, to, to write a new budget now that they're on a single income? Maybe help them to work out some of the debt they've come with as a result of the breakdown of their marriage. All of these practical things can make a tremendous difference. The third thing that you need to know about divorce is that divorce impacts the whole family. Children are tremendously impacted by the breakdown of their family unit, and children will also need to go through a process of grieving. They may need to go through a process of readjusting, perhaps to living in two homes seeing their parents less, and all of the pain that goes with that. Adult children, too. You know, sometimes adult children are forgotten in a divorce because we assume, just because they're adults, that they'll be fine. But a parental divorce at any age is a devastating loss. And so we need to bear these things in mind, that divorce impacts the whole family. The Centre for Social Justice says that a million grandparents lose contact with their grandchildren as a result of the divorce. It totally changes family dynamics, things that you took for granted, like birthday celebrations and Christmas. Suddenly, maybe the grandchildren are no longer there because they're with their other parent. And so the family grieves that loss. Maybe friends also grieve that loss. And the wider community may grieve that loss, the ripples go on and on. The fourth thing that you need to know is that divorce is common, and yet it is hidden. Divorce is common, and yet it is hidden. In spite of the statistics that I mentioned at the beginning, divorce is rarely spoken about, because there is still so much shame and stigma around divorce. And I can testify to that personally, and I can tell you over the years, time and time again, people tell me they, their divorce brings with it a tremendous sense of personal failure. Shame is one of the common themes in divorce. Brené Brown, who is a, a well-known author and expert in shame and vulnerability, she talks about the difference between shame and guilt. You see, guilt says, I made a mistake. I got it wrong. But shame says, I am a mistake. I am a mistake. In other words, I have done something so bad that it has changed who I am. It has changed 
my identity, and shame is one of the most common themes in divorce, and it is one of the hardest things to shake. And you know, one of the most concerning things I have heard over the years for Christians who experience divorce is that the place where they feel that shame most intently is in the church. You need to know that Christians who experience divorce are not just dealing with grief and pain. They are also wrestling with, where does this leave me in my faith? Does God still love me? Can I still belong to the church? Am I still accepted by my brothers and sisters in Christ? Can God still use me? For whatever reason, they are not hearing our yes, church. They are not hearing our affirmation. I meet people years after their divorce has gone through, and they are still grappling with these issues. Does that bother you, church? Because that really bothers me. Because it is totally contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the church should be the place where Divorced people feel the most loved. It should be the place where they feel the most accepted. It should be the place where they feel the most valued. And you know what? I believe if divorced people really matter, we need to search our hearts and we need to see, we need to ask ourselves, am I in any way, whether consciously or subconsciously, contributing to this? Am I contributing to this sense of shame? And you know, as I've sought to find answers to this, I believe there are two reasons why this shame just seems to be so pervasive. Firstly, because of silence. You know, I said that divorce is not spoken about this very much. That's why we, we wanted to speak about it this morning. That's why for the last 10 years in this church, we've run divorce recovery courses. Silence is a breeding ground for shame because silence speaks volumes. But the second reason I believe why this shame has been so pervasive is because there's been so much confusion about what the Bible says about divorce. What does the Bible say about the grounds for divorce? What does the Bible say about the grounds for remarriage? You know what, when we don't understand something, we look for simple answers. We look for quick answers, and we take verses out of context. And you know the one verse that everybody knows about divorce? Is God hates divorce. You take that verse out of context, you could do some serious damage. See, when that happens, our faith becomes legalistic. You know, I encourage people who are going through divorce get into the Bible, look at what, find out what the Bible says about divorce. You know why? Because the truth sets us free. But don't do it alone. Get some help in understanding the scriptures and wrestling with those scriptures. And you know, one of the most helpful books that I've read on this is a book by David Instone Brewer, who's written a book called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church, Biblical Solutions for Pastoral Realities. And you know, one of the things that I discovered as I read that book and went back to the Bible and looked at the texts is that God himself is a divorcee. You see, God divorced Israel. When you read the Old Testament, you see that many of the Old Testament prophets 
describe the, the relationship between God and the nation of Israel like a marriage relationship. God loved Israel, poured his love and affection into her, and yet she kept turning away and following foreign gods and worshipping idols. And so God divorces Israel. And you know what? I think that just brings a whole new perspective on the verse, God hates divorce. Because anybody who has been through divorce hates divorce because they know how painful it is. And I believe that God, more than anyone, understands just how painful divorce really is. There is a lot more that I could say about this, but it's for another time, for another day. Divorce is common and yet unhidden, and you know what, I believe if divorced people really matter, we need to consider how our Sunday gatherings and our other contexts for church throughout the week, and not only that, but the atmosphere around our lives is a shame-free zone. And I believe the way that we do that is by understanding God's heart for divorced people. And when I read the Bible, I, I discover at least two things about this. Firstly, I believe that God pursues divorced people. God goes looking for divorced people. Because in their shame, divorced people hide. John chapter 4 tells the story of a, a Samaritan woman at a well that Jesus goes out of his way to meet. A woman who's been hiding, a woman who's been ostracized by her community because she's been divorced five times. And the man she's now living with is not her husband. She's coming to draw water at midday, a time of day when no woman would come to draw water. She's isolated, rejected, alone. And Jesus steps into that scene, goes out of his way, and he says to her, I know, I know about your life, and I want you to know that my grace is available to you. There was something in that conversation that day that caused that woman to leave her water jar, run back into the village, and tell the very people that she'd been avoiding, come, come with me, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And not only did that lady meet Jesus that day, many people in her village met Jesus that day and said, we now believe in Jesus because we've heard him for ourselves. You see, God pursues divorced people. And I thank God for friends in this church who went out of their way to make sure that I wasn't hiding who went out of their way to draw me in and include me. I thank God for my senior pastors who continually affirmed me and told me time after time again, Jen, your divorce will not define you. Your divorce will not exclude you from any leadership position in this church. If you believe that divorced people really matter, I want to encourage you to make your voice heard to actually look for people that are hiding, to draw them in, to include them, to affirm them, and to let them know that they belong and they matter. The second thing I believe about God's heart towards divorced people is that God does not condemn divorced people. John chapter 8 is the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, which I think is kind of an unusual title because that woman was never meant to be the main character in that story. This was actually a story about the Pharisees who hated Jesus and were looking for any plan to bring him down and undermine his authority. And so they'd found this woman caught in the act of adultery. For some reason, they decided the man could go free. They bring this woman 
They, they, do you know what? They must have been so convinced that their plan would work because they didn't go to Jesus in private. Oh, no, they chose one of the most public settings they could have ever chosen. They bring this woman into the temple court where Jesus is teaching the people. They make her stand in front of the people and they point the finger and they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? We don't know much about that woman. We don't know actually even if she was divorced, but the reason I chose this passage is because adultery is one of the reasons why people get divorced. And as I said, you know what? Divorce is complex. Relationships are complex. We don't know why, she, why she'd ended up in adultery. But I bet as she was standing there that day with all eyes looking at her and fingers pointing at her, I bet she was stood there and I bet she was thinking, if only I could go back. If only I could change things. You see what, you know what, all of us, when we look at that scene, we have to say there, but for the grace of God, go I. We are all only a handful of decisions away from making the worst mistakes of our life. And I bet as she stood there that day, she just wished she could turn back the clock and she could go back. I bet you could have heard a pin drop that day as everyone's looking at Jesus and waiting to hear how is Jesus going to respond. But Jesus does not say a word. Instead, he, he stoops down, he bends down, and he begins to write in the sand. When you read the commentaries, there are so many different kind of conclusions or interpretations about what Jesus was doing in that moment. But you know what's remarkable to me? Is Jesus non-verbal communication, his body language. You see, we know today that, you know, not over 90% of our communication is non-verbal. It's not so much about the words we speak, but it's about who we are, how we are. And you know, what's remarkable to me is in that really violent scene where fingers are pointing and, and accusations are flying around, Jesus makes himself small. He stoops. You see, I believe in his body language, he was making a very clear message to the woman that day. I believe he was saying, I am not with them. I am not like them. I am not a threat to you. You know, the Hebrew word for grace means to stoop. Jesus, in his body language that day, was extending his grace to that woman. But the Pharisees just will not let up. Oh, they go on and on and on at Jesus. And so eventually Jesus stands up and he says, okay, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And I want you to notice he didn't say, let the one who has not committed adultery throw the first stone. He said, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. You see, sometimes as Christians, we categorize sin. And somehow divorce has ended up so far at the other end of the scale. I don't know whether some people even feel that divorce is unforgivable, maybe. But Jesus says, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. You see, what is Jesus doing in that moment? He's driving out condemnation. You see, grace and condemnation cannot coexist. Grace always wins. 
You see, God did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world. You see, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is only ever an invitation to come. Come to Jesus. Come into his presence with the worst sin you've ever committed. Just get into the presence of God and you will find grace there. And one by one, they begin to leave until only Jesus is left with the woman and he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you. You see, Jesus is wanting to just say to this woman, look, you need, to, you need to see what just happened. You know why? Because actually divorced people have that crowd in their head. It's not just an external thing, it's an internal thing, that condemnation. It's not just outside, it's also inside. And Jesus is wanting her to verbalize, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. There, every single one had to go, and it's just me and Jesus. You see, in Jesus' presence, there is no accusation. There is no condemnation. And she says, no, sir, no one can condemn me. And then he said, then neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus does not condemn her. He forgives her. And he offers her the chance to begin again. You know what, I believe, if, if we believe that divorced people really matter, church, I really believe, and I believe this is bigger than divorce, if we believe that, that people really matter, you know what, as Christians, I believe we need to get before God, and we need to get on our knees, and we need to ask God to drive out in us any sense of condemnation, any sense of self-righteousness, any sense of legalism. And we need to humble ourselves before God and we need to ask God to increase our capacity for mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment so that not just our words but also our non-verbal communication and most importantly our hearts would be filled with grace and community and that's what would flow out of us wherever we are. We need to catch God's heart for divorced people because God pursues divorced people. God does not condemn divorced people. And the final thing that I want to say about divorce is that divorce is not the end. It's the end of the relationship, but it is not the end of that person's life. There is a hope and a future for people beyond divorce because God is redemptive. You know, we called our organization Mosaic Lives because for me, a, a mosaic is such a picture of hope of a God who is able to take the broken pieces of our life and create something more beautiful than you could ever imagine. There is always a way forward. There is always a way through. But more than that, God is able to use our pain. You see, in God, there are no wasted years. And if you will allow him, God will take your pain and he will use it to bring hope and healing to others in your world. God gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. And those are the things that we take into the future, not the pain, not the grief, not the sorrow, but beauty, gladness, praise, and a greater revelation of the goodness of God. If you believe divorced people really matter, I want to encourage you, church, do not write them off. Divorce is what they did. It is not who they are. 
Let's be those who build others up. Let's spur one another on to press on to all that God has called us to be. And let's continue to ask God to increase our capacity to love and to value others because divorced people really matter. People really matter. If you're here today and you're going through divorce, I just want to break off condemnation in the name of Jesus. I want to break off shame in the name of Jesus. If you listen online, I'm including you in this prayer. I want to break off shame in the name of Jesus. I want to break off hopelessness in the name of Jesus. I want to break off guilt in the name of Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. Father God, I I release your healing power. I release your healing, Father God. Come on church, join me in this. Father, we, we, we proclaim your healing, Lord, over every hurting heart, over every wounded soul. And we declare over, over people here that they have a, there is a hope and a future for them beyond their divorce. And Father, I pray that you would fill them to overflowing with your hope today, that they would overflow with hope by the power of your Holy Spirit and they would be amazed at your goodness, at your love, at your mercy and what you can do with their lives in Jesus' name.